Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. Hard to believe we are already at the start of another week, and hard to believe that a week from this Thursday it will be Thanksgiving. You know, with all that's going on in the world right now, um, one thing I do have to admit is that um, my podcasting to all of you out there uh, helps me um, not worry as much with everything else that's going on. I'm glad that I'm able to share with you all not so much what I know history-wise, but to be able to pass the word along so that for any of you, wherever you may live in the world, whether it's here in the United States or in Great Britain, uh, Canada, Italy, as far away as Singapore, wherever you all are listening, I appreciate you all tuning in, and I also appreciate you getting the word out to others who are in need of wanting to learn about information that is not only relevant, but is uh, positive, and it's something that, while yes, there could be some stuff that is sensitive, but it's stuff that we can learn, and not only learn about the past, but how we can take this information and carry it into um, not only just our present setting, but how we move forward um, as a society and as a world in the future. So I'm very um, honored to still be with you guys um, since the start of June, and I don't plan on going anywhere else. Uh, But here we are again tonight uh, discussing founding rivals, Madison versus Monroe, the Bill of Rights, and the election that saved a nation. What I'm going to Uh, share with all of you here for this session is the true nitty-gritty events. In other words, here we are now going to be uh, discussing how the candidates are going to uh, debate one another. We're going to learn about their strengths and their weaknesses. This, and we're also going to learn how they're going to go about um, courting Voters, in other words, how are they going to win voters who are undecided? You know, the fifth congressional district already is very heavily anti-federalist, so James Madison does have a lot of um, uphill battles to go up against. But James Monroe isn't automatically immune himself either. Yes, the vast majority of the counties, being eight total, are anti-federalists, but it doesn't mean that it's an automatic win for Monroe. That's So basically, it's a double-edged sword, 50-50. You know, it either works for you or against you, but there's no 100% guarantee. So our lead-off bonus question for tonight is going to be the following. Would the 5th Virginia congressional race mark the first and only time in U.S. history where two candidates from the same district running against one another also became presidents? The answer is yes. And I highly doubt that it'll probably ever happen again in in our history, but it did happen. And what do you know? um, Madison and Monroe uh, would become the fourth and fifth presidents of our nation so, the, the election in 1789 between Madison and Monroe would determine the course 
for how the new Congress, or let alone the first Congress, would go about establishing a legislative agenda that met the people's needs. Well, when one says the people's needs, what could that necessarily refer to? Well, it could refer to a variety of things, but I have a strong instinct or um, assumption that the people's needs are probably going to be revolved around fundamental rights, or let alone the Bill of Rights, as we know today, being those first ten amendments. Something tells me that that could be a huge uh, priority. But on the other hand, a lot would also depend on who gets elected, because if the let's say the opposing candidate who is an anti-federalist gets elected, that could also have an um, impact on what legislation gets um, passed and what gets um, delayed for, say, the second session of the first Congress. Did Madison and Monroe each have long records of public service? Well, that's a no-brainer right there, but we still should be reminded of the fact that these two distinguished gentlemen had, did indeed have long records of public service. Well, here's an example of just what both men did that exemplifies their long records of public service. They each served in the House of Delegates, the Council of State, which is the upper body of the Virginia government that is like the equivalent of a Senate in today's time, but it was an eight-member body which advised the governor on how to go about um, supporting or opposing um, legislative um, bills that the Virginia House of Delegates uh, brought forth. Basically, the uh, Council of State might also be the equivalent of a modern-day presidential or a governmental uh, cabinet system. Both men also served in the Congress of the Confederation, as well as the Virginia Ratification Convention. Did each man have different successes? Yes. Madison was a more prominent public figure to being the chief architect of the Constitution, might as well have been a historic political thinker for his time. And as I had mentioned from a, a previous podcast um, a couple of uh, sessions back, someone had um, phrased this uh, from an article I had read some years back. To understand James Madison is to understand how the Constitution came into effect. So what that basically means is we have to understand Madison's uh, logistical thinking behind why past governments succeeded, why past governments failed, but how our country, say given in 1787, would prevail if we um, reversed course and scrapped what was already in existence to make it into something better that would last not only um, for the present state but for future generations, but a system of government that was for the people and by for the people, but, but also had a fair system of checks and balances where 
one system of government did not overpower the other. So that's really one way to understand James Madison as a political thinker and how the Constitution um, evolved, not only with time, but how it evolved into um, the format that our uh, framers established during the uh, time of the Constitutional Convention. As for James Monroe, he is a well-respected statesman, a lawyer who had a successful private practice, as well as being a Revolutionary War hero. And it's very fair to say that both men knew that the Constitution's future, along with a new government system, was at stake with this race. So, for both men, they can't leave anything on the table to chance. They've got to... Um, They've got to be able to bring everything with them because there are a lot of voters out there who are really, in a sense, first-time voters. And we're going to find out who those um, people are because they're not just everyday, ordinary people. We have to remember, folks, here we are in 1789. Not everybody is able to vote. And what I, what I mean by not everyone being able to vote... Um, Women don't have the right to vote at this time. Um, other um, minorities don't have the right. And yes, we can look back and say that that wasn't fair. But of course, over time, a lot of other things will change. But we must remember right now, and even from the previous podcast, that um, the voting qualifications in 1789 for Virginia were that you had to be a white male you had to have uh, 25 acres of uh, land and a home, or you had to have 50 acres of land that, um, that say, were not um, what you call top-of-the-line um, acreage, but you, had to, um, but you had to have between 25 and 50 acres of land to um, be considered eligible to vote. On the other hand, if you had well above 25 to 50 acres of land, you were already um eligible. So the bottom line is you have to meet the minimum threshold of 25 to 50 acres of land. So our next bonus question will be the following. Had both men undergone political defeat in Virginia? Yes. Madison lost his seat at the time when the 1776 Virginia Convention went about establishing the uh, House of Delegates. So prior to 1776, and leading up to the um, Virginia Convention, or the Fifth Virginia Convention, I should say, uh, the Virginia legislature was known as the House of Burgesses. And of course, uh, Lord Dunmore, a.k.a. John Murray, dissolved the House of Burgesses at the very end of 1775 as he was um, fleeing Virginia to escape, um, to escape uh, capture to return back to England. Whereas James Monroe would lose his um, House of Delegates seat um, in 1786. He had defended his seat that was from uh, King George County. Another bonus question to think about, well, actually, before I get to the next bonus question, I should say that perhaps defeat might not have been a bad thing for both of these men because, you know, it's one thing to lose a race, but it's how you... Um, it's how you go about regrouping yourself 
in the uh, midst of defeat that will define not only how you as an individual accept defeat, but how you um, how you take defeat and not only learn from um, losing a race, but how you can go about um, taking the experience and transforming it to where you will become a better um, individual in whatever other course of action you pursue uh, down the road. So in other words, you know, you can't win all the time. There's going to be times where you end up coming on up on the short, short end of the stick and losing, but it's how you go about accepting the defeat. Unfortunately, unfortunately, we have a lot of politicians who don't know how to accept defeat properly, regardless of party affiliation. And uh, when you don't accept defeat, I think it, um, it, it's, a, it's a true sign of weakness. You know, it, there again, we can't win all the time, but how we accept defeat show, can ultimately, in the end, show what kind of character we have. So now to the next bonus question, what is the greatest enemy of any political campaign? Well, I can tell you this much, it's not the um the smear tactics, it's not the um the negative uh campaigning that we think of perhaps in today's time. The actual answer is a four-letter word, time. Time itself is an essential resource. Regardless, in my opinion, regardless of the task that we're up against, time is an essential resource. You know, uh, my wife and I enjoy traveling. Uh, we enjoy going places, whether it's just for the day or taking a big trip um, during the summer. You know, we thoroughly enjoy our travels, and there are a lot of other places that we want to visit. Uh, we certainly hope next year we'll be able to go to Philadelphia with all the rich history that's there, especially with the Declaration of Independence and Constitution. But my point is, is the following. You think you have all this time to be able to go places, but in reality, you don't really have as much time as you would like to think there is. So you really have to make the most of the time that you do have to be able to uh, go out and enjoy going somewhere for the day, whether it's a historic place, going to a winery, whatever it is that um, that you really have a lot of passion about, you've got to make the most of it because if not, you know, any one of us could wake up and regret that there was something we didn't get a chance to uh, pursue, big or small. So time, yes, is an essential resource. But how it, what it really boils down to in the political spectrum with campaigning, in the case for Madison Monroe, it's how do they as candidates go about promoting their agendas to persuading the undecided, undecided voters into their party camps. In other words, into their arena, not just for short term, but long term. Now, what's unique about February 2nd, 1789 it is the official election date between Madison and Monroe. So here's something else I find interesting now, folks. You know, politicians now have a lot more time to campaign. I think they almost have too much time to campaign. I think the same can be said for presidential elections now these days. But in 1789... Madison and Monroe really weren't given a whole lot of time, but I think that's okay. 
you have to remember, folks, these men didn't have millions of dollars to spend like today's politicians do. As a matter of fact, I don't even think they were worried about money. What they were more concerned about was just, um, they were really concerned about making a uh, name for not only themselves, but they were also more concerned about shaping the course of history. Because when I'm reminded of more and more, especially in rereading this book and in noting what's essential to discuss with you all, my listeners, is that this race really was a race for the ages because this race alone would make or break whether or not we as a country would still operate under the uh, Constitution that was um, implemented in Philadelphia or whether or not we would have to start all over from scratch. So a lot is riding at stake. I almost have to, to wonder, was it our nation's national security at stake based upon this election? It's very likely so. So who would think that at the start of our nation's republic that we know today, that, uh, that one particular election alone would um, change everything? But I also have to believe, too, that given that Virginia is the largest of the 13 states, as I've said so many times before, given that Virginia is the largest, she has a lot to gain, but she has a lot to lose. So whichever one of these candidates wins, whichever one of these candidates were to win this election, it could either be for the better or for the worse. So it just uh, goes to show you just how vulnerable the stakes are. Would the news would newspapers serve as a vital source of information to voters during this um, election? The answer is yes. And do newspapers serve as a vital source to voters today? They still do, but we have to remember folks in the 21st century we have far more vital means of uh, mass media outlets unlike their work there were available in 18th century uh, times. So basically, newspapers are really your utmost vital source of information to voters. So here's a good example of a newspaper that um, that actually had a, a significant uh, impact on one of the two uh, Jameses, being James Monroe. The newspaper was known, the title of the newspaper was known as Appeal for the Election of James Monroe. The newspaper here viewed or let alone portrayed James Monroe as someone who would be a true defender of American liberty. In other words, not leaving the people behind, always looking for resolutions towards amending the Constitution to ensure that liberty itself would be secure long term. Well, isn't James Madison a defender of American liberty? Sure he is. But what the newspaper was pointing at here was that James Madison, while yes, he wanted people to have freedoms, he didn't think that it was necessary to put them into the Constitution. Whereas James Monroe wanted those freedoms to be specifically worded in the Constitution so that that the guarantees for personal liberties like freedom of religion, for example, would be ensured permanently, not just for the present, but for future generations. So did Madison and Monroe 
go about courting essential constituency groups? Absolutely. If they didn't, they would have been shooting themselves in the foot. The most numerous group in Virginia, and this is one that we should really think long and hard about, the most numerous group in Virginia was none other than religious dissenters. I think that's true because if you think about it, prior to the um, American Revolutionary War coming to an end, up until 1778, what did people in Virginia, where were they paying their taxes to? The Church of England, or let alone the Anglican Church. Prior to the American Revolutionary War even starting, where did Virginians pay their taxes to? The Anglican Church. Okay, well, if you're not a member of the Church of England, you're still basically up a creek. And if you aren't a member of the Church of England, are you allowed to worship freely? No. And which religious group endured um, the most severe form of um, treatment? The Baptists. That leads me to my next bonus question for you all. What had Baptists and other religious dissenters endured for years that brought them together in choosing the right candidate for 1789, for the 1789 election? They had endured a lifetime of political and religious discrimination from within their own government. So, remember this, folks. If you were a member of the Church of England, a.k.a. the Anglican Church, you're allowed to worship freely. In other words as long as you worship freely within the Church of England's realms. But if you're not, if you're a, a Lutheran, a Methodist, or a Baptist, you're not allowed to worship freely. The Church of England frowns upon you. They will discriminate against you. They won't even allow religious diversity in, in Virginia. If you want religious diversity, you should go to New Jersey, where James Madison attended college at the College of New Jersey, what we now know as Princeton. He, um, he was um, exposed to a great um, deal of religious diversity that made him a better, well-rounded person. And when he comes back to Virginia in 1772, 1773, he is still blown away by just how much religious um, intolerance there is. And that's when he started to demonstrate compassion for Baptists and other religious um, groups. So I do believe it's fair to say that the minority of people in terms of a religious affiliation in Virginia were, in fact, of the Church of England. The majority were your dissenters, if you ask me uh, what, what ratio would you say, um, what ratio do you think would have been the perf- most perfect for um, religious disparities in Virginia? If you ask my honest opinion, I would almost have to say 90-10. How so? Well, those who are members of the Church of England are from the most well-to-do families in Virginia, being Randolphs, Custises, Lees, you name it. The list can go on and on. But really, your most well-to-do families make up the um, 
who are what you call the aristocrats or the uh, the gentry, they are in that elite one to two percent of uh, society. But if you think about it on the grand scale, they would make up an elite population of say ten percent. The other ninety percent are are um, are obviously not in the gentry, but they are a larger group of people who don't have the same access to. Um, entitlements as the gentry. So that 90% right there, your Baptists, your Lutherans, um, Quakers, Methodists, that's just my approach. But if you ask me, I think it's a, a, a well-respected approach when you consider that only a small number of people um, were well-to-do and the, that small group of people were the ones that controlled all the, the land um, in Virginia, and they also were the most powerful people who held uh, political seats in the House of Burgesses, as well as being a part of the Governor's uh, Council of State. Baptists were, in fact, the most significant voting group in the 5th Congressional District. So who can the Baptists turn to for um, a leader? Is it going to be someone within... Um, within the government, or is it just someone who is one of their own that can uh, vouch for all those, uh, all the other uh, individuals who are struggling just to be able to um, have a voice within the government? Yes, the Baptists in, the, in Virginia, most notably in the 5th Congressional District, will have a leader by the name of George Eve, who founded what was known as the Ragged Mountain Baptist Society. It's an interesting name for a society. But the group itself met, um, what I found interesting is that this group met secretly. But then again, a lot of religious dissenters had to meet secretly. They, they couldn't uh, be out in the open. But then again, if they were out in the open, they were, um, they, they were bullied, they received threats. As a matter of fact, one Baptist minister was assaulted by an outsider because the outsider viewed his um, teaching practices as a threat to the uh, community as a whole and a threat to religious stability. Of course, I have no way of knowing if this man who was the assailant that um, attacked the preacher was a member of the Church of England, but the bottom line is, is that there was obviously um, religious conflict. It turns out, though, that the Ragged Mountain Baptist Society um, met secretly in an orchard of beech trees to prevent religious persecutions from happening. As for George Eve, he served multiple congregations in large part, in large part due to a small number of Baptist ministers present in Virginia. But he also had to serve multiple congregations due to other Baptist preachers being arrested for various preaching style offenses or, or let alone practices. So yes, I think it's fair to say that um, if, if you are a Baptist uh, minister, you're going to need to cater to more than just one congregation. Uh, think about it. If say another Baptist minister is jailed, somebody's got um, somebody's got to be able to keep the, um, the mission alive, not just to preach their, your faith but to, but to keep the um, but to keep the, the purpose alive that, hey, we want religious diversity. We want religious freedom. We want religious toleration. We are not 
going to be subjected to any more to to further intolerance, further persecutions. Um, we don't want any more of this. So we've got to have someone who is going to stick up for us. Now, which of the two Jameses would be the first to court George Eve? James Madison. Madison's true principles or beliefs regarding amendments revolved around a letter from January 2nd of 1789, where he admitted how circumstances in general had changed since Virginia's ratification of the U.S. Constitution from June of 1788. So we're talking, folks, about not even a seven-month change in heart, but just over six months. But, you know, almost, we're at the start, about the six-and-a-half-month mark. This is quite a 360 turnaround because, you know, Madison, as I said earlier, he believed in in um, personal liberties. He wanted people to have fundamental rights. At first, he was just he was very skeptical about the idea of needing to include all these amendments into the uh, into a constitution. But Madison is smart enough now to realize that hey, maybe we got to do some things differently because if I don't um, alter my thinking here, then then my chances of getting elected are going to be um, slimmer. They're, going to be, uh, they're not going to be as high. So Madison now, and this is also a way for him to network better in an anti-federalist, um, in a district that is comprised mostly of anti-federalists. He's got to find a way to connect with these people, especially the Baptists or any other block of religious dissenters who had been disenfranchised in terms of not being able to worship freely for a long period of time. So, this is one of Madison's campaign promises, and given one of his campaign promises was to go about introducing a Bill of Rights or a First Amendment if elected. And of course, we all know that First Amendment, of course, I don't want to give it away, but maybe I should remind those of you out there who have forgotten or who are not familiar that the First Amendment to our Constitution is freedom of speech, freedom, freedom of the press, the right to assemble and petition, but most notably, freedom of religion. Our next bonus question is going to be the following. What steps did George Eve take to ensure his followers that James Madison was, in fact, the right candidate for the 5th District? He went about making sure that his followers had not forgotten what Madison did a few years earlier. And what was it that James Madison had did a few years earlier? Well, back in 1784, 1785, Madison um, went about ensuring that religious freedom protections under the Virginia Statute of Religious Freedom would, would not go unnoticed. In other words... He stood up to Patrick Henry, whom was very adamant on, um, on reintroducing uh, religious teaching instructions. While that sounds great, there's only one problem. The religious teaching instructions would be led by none other than um, Episcopal church leaders, making the, the Episcopal Church of Virginia the head official church of Virginia, but also... 
the head um, official religion as well. What do um, opponents who are against that see? A direct violation of church and state. So James Madison is ensuring that religious freedom protections will remain intact, not just for the present, but for the future. So he went about defeating the proposal for taxing all Virginians behind religious teaching practices benefiting the Episcopal Church. Once again, a direct um, a, a victory in achieving separation of church and state. In other words, church cannot be meddling into the affairs of the government. It cannot influence the government on how it should um, run its operations. Government should not be telling the church how to uh, teach its um, sermons or how it should go about um, educating its congregation on how um, the Bible itself should be interpreted. Church and state are important but they cannot uh, be influencing one another on how to operate their um, daily operations. If so, then how can there be any form of normalcy? There just can't be. Madison could be seen as one who uh, was split upon amendment expansion, but often admitted that amendments were necessary to prevent further discord, meaning to prevent further um, disruption amongst the people when such matters arose. And and coming to the realization that um, amendments are in fact going to be needed to be um, debated if he is elected to Congress, he's, you know, another example here of where he is realizing that in order to win the votes of those who are anti-federalist to get them to change their mind, this is where he's got to uh, expand and reinvent himself. Another question is this, folks. What had Madison and Monroe been used to doing campaign-wise prior to 1789? Well, let's look at the present, though. Fifth Congressional District, eight counties. Prior to 1789, both men, along with any other um, individual, would have been used to campaigning in just one uh, county only, being at the House of Delegates uh, state level. Here's a bonus question right here. Would Madison and Monroe make several appearances together regardless of the audience? Yes. It turns out, folks, that both men lodged and dined together as well as keeping each other company. Now, talk about good camaraderie despite having um, differences in opinion it turns out that these men learned how to disagree without being disagreeable. Shouldn't uh, politicians learn to do that as well? Even in today's, uh, what do you call it, fast-paced, changing world? You would think so, but unfortunately, um, learning how to disagree without being disagreeable waved bye-bye to many of our politicians um, a long time ago. But thank heavens James Madison and James Monroe um, learned how to disagree without being disagreeable. Maybe it was their way of realizing that, hey, whoever is going to win this election, how do I say it? Whoever is going to win this election, yes, will come out on top. But as, for the, um, but as for the person who will lose, that the um, 
the person who loses should know, okay, yes, I might have lost, but maybe it would be best for me not to burn the bridge or burn bridges because I never know when I might need the victor's um, assistance with something. So, hey, at least the two of these men know that, hey, they still have each other's back despite their political differences. Prior to 1789, the relationship between both Jameses had been forged through mail. They knew of each other, but 90, it's, fair, it's probably fair to say that over 90% of their correspondence was through mail. Here's a good, another good bonus question, but then again, when is there never a bad bonus question? If there was a bad bonus question, I don't know why I would even be mentioning it to you all. But, <laughs> but here we go, folks. Uh, despite maintaining great respect for one another, would both Jameses have major political differences? Yes. If I had to pick one of their one big um, issue that separated these men... It had to do with um, the matter revolving around the national government's power to impose direct taxes upon all the people, or let alone the people in the United States. So what is a direct tax? I looked into that um, before I got on the um, air with you all. There are all kinds of taxes, I can tell you all this much, but a direct tax is a type of tax where a person or an organization pays directly to the imposing entity, or let alone an institution. For example, a taxpayer has to pay taxes to the government for various reasons. You have real and personal property taxes, income tax, etc. So the bottom line is, you know, yes, you, you pay taxes, but you've got to pay these taxes to an entity. You know, in other words, we pay taxes not only on the federal level, but we also pay taxes to the state that we live in. There are, um, you know, county taxes as well. So taxes aren't just confined to one entity. Think of it also like, you know, we pay bills, like we pay credit card bills. So let's say you have a, um, a Capital One, uh, you have a Capital One credit card. Capital One sends you a statement each month. You have to pay um, to pay the bill to the credit card company. Think of it; it's not a tax, but it's like you know a a, a relationship of um, you know you being the taxpayer, and that it's your obligation to um, pay to pay your taxes to the government, and it's also your obligation to pay a bill to the company who is lending you money or lending you uh, credit, let alone. How did James Monroe view direct taxation? Well, for starters, he believed that the national government had powers it didn't need, which if gone, which if gone unchecked would endanger people's liberty long term. Well, here's where James Monroe would have every right to be concerned about checks and balances, but the thing is, is that the Constitution has already put into play some good checks and balances on... Um, the particular branches of government, most notably legislative and executive, from not um, overpowering one another. But on the other hand, yes, the Constitution has already stated that the government has the right to, uh, has the power to tax, especially under Article 1, Section 8. 
However, for James Monroe, when I read this, I came to the realization that perhaps James, what really concerned James Monroe was the Constitution in his eyes had not been specific enough on what taxes the national government would have the right to impose upon the people's consent. I think James Monroe, how do I say it? It's not a bad thing, but I think he's still in that mindset dating back to when Parliament passed that infamous 1765 Stamp Act, which basically uh, placed... uh, taxes on various items, but did so without the consent of the people. And this is where, of course, the colonists felt betrayed by Parliament because they did not have a voice overseas that basically said, hey, the people over in America have given us the consent to tax. So for James Monroe, I think he was worried that people who sent representatives to Congress would all of a sudden not have their voices be reflected. He was afraid that perhaps the Constitution would give power to the hands of a few who would impose taxes upon the people without their consent. But we also must remember, too, that taxes, uh, uh, proposing taxes is something that goes before uh, both uh, chambers of Congress to where debates take place. And if there's a two-thirds majority, then it goes before uh, the president to enforce those taxes into law. So in other words, Congress would, would be required to debate this. But for James Monroe, what he was worried about was what was not included in the Constitution. So in other words... It's one thing to give powers to Congress or to the government, but if you don't specify exactly what those powers are, then you are giving the government too much power than what it already should be allowed to have. James Monroe also worried about disparities over uh, taxation. Uh, In other words, like take, for example, land tax. Monroe wondered if people would be taxed the same regardless of how much acreage they acquired. In other words, if one group of people had more acreage of land over someone else, shouldn't those people who own, say, 500 acres of land be subjected to pay their fair share of taxes compared to someone who owns only 25 acres of land? Absolutely. But I think for James Monroe, he didn't want one group of people to be forced to pay higher taxes compared to another group of people who were exempt because of their status. I've often heard politicians say the following, these tax cuts don't, won't benefit all Americans. They'll only benefit the wealthiest 1% to 2% of society. Well, I think for James Monroe, he was probably afraid that whatever taxes were imposed upon people that, say, the vast majority being, say, well over 50% would be the ones stuck with the burden of paying the tax, whereas the wealthiest 1% to 2% would only be stuck having to pay the minimal amount. It's not the, it may not be the best explanation, but 
We also have to understand where James Monroe's coming from, given that he is an anti-federalist. It is fair to say that James Monroe firmly believed there were other options for raising money versus direct taxes, or direct taxation, I should say. Well, what were those other options? He believed in the sale of western lands or territory to establishing levies, or what uh, Chris DeRose mentioned being imposts, which is another word for levies, that is, in this case, taxes on all imported goods entering the United States. Well, I think the sale of western lands is not a bad idea, but the problem is, is that if you sell those lands, is the money going to be around 20 years from now? Very doubtful. Monroe believed direct taxation also had the potential to disrupt what states could and couldn't be allowed to enforce per their own set of rules or powers. Basically, James Monroe feared that the government itself, if gone unchecked with powers, would resemble that of a monarchy. Well, this is the classic anti-federalist versus federalist arguments for the, that went into play after the Constitution was signed in Philadelphia. Federalists like Alexander Hamilton, George Washington, John Adams, they all believe in a strong, powerful central government, whereas anti-federalists like James Monroe, Thomas Jefferson believe in a weaker, in a, what do you call it, in a weaker central government that's not so powerful or intrusive. Federalists like Alexander Hamilton believe that the wealthy and the well-educated were the ones who should be running the government. And what I mean by wealthy and well-educated, yes, wealthy meaning that you have lot, could have lots of money or lots of land, but being well-educated didn't necessarily revolve around the fact that, oh, I got a degree from Harvard or from Yale. It meant that you were well-educated in a handful of subjects and you had that knowledge with you to bring to the government. If you weren't well-educated, then why should you even think of running for a seat in the government? Because if you, if you don't have a, a strong education, then how can you sell your thoughts or your ideas to uh, people that you would want to be representing? Another bonus question is the following. Did each region in the United States around 1789 have different economies? Yes. Northern cities like Boston, Philadelphia, New York City, those cities held occupations, or the people in those cities rather, held occupations ranging from tradesmen, artisans, to manufacturers. These people lived in towns. Whereas in the southern economy, that economy revolved around agriculture, work done on large estates, a.k.a. plantations. Now here we go to James Madison. Did Mr. Madison know that fear over direct tax was something that could ruin his candidacy? Yes, Madison knew that if the power involving direct taxation was denied to the national government, then the only thing available to keep it afloat would be levies or taxes from imported goods which did not provide for any long-term sustainability, or should I say, let alone long-term revenue growth. The power of direct taxation was also a way to maintain government 
government's ability to function, not just short-term, but permanently. Did Madison believe direct taxation wasn't a threat to liberty? Yes. For Madison, direct taxation was an absolute essential means of support in order to go about maintaining an, effect, an effective government where people's freedoms remained in check, which weren't done so under the Articles of Confederation. So, you know, direct taxation's not meant to punish people. It's meant to go about collecting money so that government can um, fund projects. Think about it. We need better roads. We need better ways to go about transporting goods like canals. Uh, we also need bridges for so that um, so that it's another way to get people from point A to point B. We don't want to be stuck in a rut, but we would like to be able to advance ourselves. But remember, folks, money doesn't grow on trees. Taxes alone, in James Madison's eyes, will serve as a better means. Uh, direct taxation as a better means of generating revenue to help the people in big and small ways. Madison himself was seen as one of the as one of uh, of a few select people in America with achievements viewed as higher than James Monroe's. They both had significant achievements, folks, but I'd have to say that James Madison's was a little bit higher. But James Monroe's were great. Another bonus question to think about is the following. Besides Baptists, which other religious dissenting group would play a pivotal role with influencing the outcome of the, in the 5th Congressional District? This other religious group was Lutherans, and they too, like Baptists, had endured their fair share of religious intolerance as well as facing new fears to being subjected in support for religious teachings sponsored by the Episcopal Church. It is fair to say to sum up uh, this session that swing voters, primarily Baptists and Lutherans, would have greater power in determining which one of the Jameses would go on to Congress representing the 5th District. Whichever man won had the potential of determining whether the U.S. survived under the new Constitution or underwent or would go about um, a complete overhaul, and a.k.a. a second constitutional convention. Well, if you ask me, if I were alive in 1789, I'd rather have the current government in play. Yes, it may not be perfect, but as Benjamin Franklin said, it was the best that we could come up with for our time. Well, folks, we've covered a lot of ground tonight. I look forward to being back on the air again here soon. Thank you for listening, and stay safe.